This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, founder of Empire State Properties. I know this is a real estate show, but what's the most important thing in our lives? It's not investments. It's not even real estate. It's our health. Today, we have with us a very special guest, a renowned vascular surgeon at Columbia Hospital. That's the finest. A medical army reserve surgeon for 22 years. With us today, I'm proud to have Dr. Nick Morrissey. Hey, Nick, thank you for coming on our show. Uh, Good morning, Suzanne. It's really great to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Things have changed so much. Whoever thought this is uh, 2023 and we'd be where we are? The pandemic has changed us in so many ways. Doctors and medical staff worked 24-7 around the clock. I remember those days. They were risking their own lives to save COVID patients. The world has changed. Now we have something called telemedicine, telehealth. Nick, take us through that. What does that even mean? So telehealth, telemedicine is really the performance of an evaluation and it's pretty much a physician or a clinician visit using technology such as video as well as audio. And before the pandemic, it was in use. Uh, There were restrictions on how much you could use it. But as you can imagine, when the pandemic hit, especially here in New York, you know, we wanted to keep people out of the offices to prevent the spread of COVID. So the use of telehealth skyrocketed uh, in New York City and at Columbia with Columbia doctors, our use of telehealth literally um, went up by a hundredfold and our in- in-person visits dropped dramatically. So we were able to deliver the healthcare that we needed, but we didn't have to expose patients to potential infection by bringing them in the office. It was really revolutionary and it's opened up a whole new world of healthcare that I hope will continue You know, now that the public health emergency is coming to an end uh, in several weeks. Well, I have trouble even with Zoom, so I don't see how I can go to a doctor and have them examine my throat, my ear, my anything. Like, how, how is this? What treatments can be done on the telephone? So there are ways of providing diagnostic uh, tools via telehealth. You know, the technology is expanding. Things like uh, wearable technology, such as doing EKGs with your phone, uh, getting a stethoscope that can transmit um, the heart sounds electronically to your doctor's phone. These things are available. And the technology can sometimes be challenging, but I think part of the way of improving the delivery of telehealth is to facilitate people's access to internet and uh, high-speed Wi-Fi. And, you know, it's oftentimes as simple as if we have older patients, we'll have them do their first telehealth visit maybe with a grandchild who's more tech-savvy to get them more comfortable with the technology. And it takes patience on the side of the patient and the clinician to, you know, take the time to get that first visit down the right way. But you can do a lot by looking at someone on a video. We don't want to replace in-person care completely, But we feel like if we could do some of our visits virtually, we can avoid things like waiting room congestion, traffic out in front of the hospital, parking costs, toll costs, and things like that. So what happens if I'm in a rural area and there's no internet? 
So actually telehealth was originally started for people in rural areas. And what they would do, they had these sort of regional centers where patients would go, which had basically kind of like what we have here, audiovisual technology. The patients could come to this center and that um, the video and audio would be transmitted to their physicians. So the original use of telehealth in this country was actually for people who lived in pretty remote areas. That's so fascinating. My goodness. Well, I still want to go to the doctor. So let's just move on a minute. New York City, I mean, for me, I always boast about this. It's known to have the best hospitals in the entire world. At Empire, we house patients from literally every country. Some countries like Kuwait, they pay their citizens to come to the United States, particularly Colombia and other hospitals in the New York area to get medical treatment. So with all of the, like even like my friends in Florida, everybody's gone to Florida, right? Like 10,000 people went just in the last two months, every time I pick up the paper. But everybody says, if I get sick, I'm coming to New York. I'm coming back to New York because I want the, me the best medical care. With the increased homelessness and migrants, have the hospitals and ERs been burdened? Well, I think hospitals and ERs in New York City classically have had high volume and have been stressed to pretty extreme levels. You know, we, we do strive and we promise to provide emergency care to whoever needs it. And we're able to do that, you know, without much difficult. Well, I shouldn't say without much difficulty. We do what we have to do. There's no question that we do also entertain or bring in a lot of patients from other countries. Like you say, you, you often put them up in, in some of your properties. And we're proud to be able to provide that scope of care to all patients who come to us. Would it be easier if the emergency rooms were less uh, stress, that would certainly be a helpful thing. I think one of the ways to improve on that is to have a better system in place for primary care so that patients who don't have access to a good primary care doctor will get access and they don't have to use the emergency room as their primary place to go see a physician. And that will take a little bit of the pressure off of the emergency rooms. We do, you know, New York City is the greatest, as you mentioned, and we are able to pivot to make sure that we can also provide care for folks who come from far away to get that level that's really just New York City. I mean, I'm bragging because I've, I live here, but I think we do have the best doctors and the best care system. And, you know, to your point about Florida, it's okay. I'll mention that, you know, telehealth in Florida is, is a great option because any clinician who has a license in New York can get a telehealth license in Florida, it takes about 20 minutes of an application, costs about $50. And a lot of your New York patients go to Florida, right? So they want to keep in touch with their New York doctors. It's pretty easy for a doctor in New York to be able to provide telehealth to any of their patients who are in Florida for all of the year or part of the year. And it provides that continuity of care. They don't necessarily have to come back up. I mean, if they need surgery, they'll come back up. But for their routine visits, they can maybe stay where they are and not have to leave. I appreciate your optimism about New York, but it's it's very baffling to me to think who's paying for these services. A half a million people, half a million people left New York. I know most of those were high income earners. Who's paying for the services? I can't imagine we're still giving the patients the same care when they're using the ERs as their primary doctor? Well, I think what it comes down to is it comes down to the institutions and the providers and they, they're under stress, but they do still continue to provide the best levels of care. The finances of it are still, you know, that's, that is a challenge. Uh, I don't have expertise really in the way that the finances run, but there are folks at the hospital and the city and the state level, as well as the federal level that are attentive to this. I think at some point there does need to be some federal support for providing the care that our hospitals do when we 
you know, when we find ourselves in positions where someone is here that maybe doesn't have insurance, we still continue to provide that care. But having the support of the federal government would be very helpful in those situations, I'm sure. Um, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, the tax base sometimes can move around by, you know, people moving to Florida. Um, but New York, as you can see from looking around, is as vigorous as it ever has been uh, from before the pandemic. And I, I'm a, the kind of person that believes if you bet against New York, then you're you're going to lose. So do I think we don't have work to do? Of course we have work to do. But I, again, I would always put my faith in the people of New York and the infrastructure of New York. Do we need to work on it? Absolutely. But we can still provide the best care uh, for all the patients who come our way. Well, I really hope that you're right. So in speaking about what we're trying to do to help all these people, what do you think the chances are that the United States moves to a more socialized medicine? So I think one of the interesting things is that there's always political um, discussions that go around healthcare, right? So if you think about one of the most treasured aspects of the federal budget, it's Medicare and Social Security. And people, I think, without exception, are really loath to think about getting rid of those. I mean, Medicare basically is socialized medicine. And I think as a country, we're proud to be able to provide care for the people who've worked hard all their lives and put money into the system and to be able to provide once they're retired for their care going forward. Medicare is not perfect, but it does work quite well. Having said that, you don't want to necessarily take away the free market system because that encourages um, the development of new technologies, of new therapies. And so we, I think in this country, are we struggle, but we're doing fairly well at balancing between the idea of public support for healthcare and private uh, private sector support for insurance and for uh, development of new technologies. I think most people who have and who are able to have private insurance and, and have the means to get the best possible care are comfortable with supporting those who don't necessarily have access to that, you know, especially in areas like you know, mental health and um, areas that are underserved. So it's a balance, but we, you know, a lot of folks in other countries look at us and think we're not, we're not doing it great. But if like to your point before, we are where most of the innovation happens and we are where most people come to get the top care. So it's a balancing act. Socialized medicine, I don't think is going to be the, the way that we do healthcare in this country 100%, but we already do have a system in place, which has been around for a long time, which is essentially government uh, sponsored. Well, that's interesting that you brought up mental health because you see what's going on with so many mentally ill people in the streets, sleeping in the streets, and they don't have insurance. So maybe that is one area that will work, as you said. Well, I think that you know most people who um, run budgets and who are in charge of the purse strings realize that you know, money well spent will save you money in the future. So I think I've always had a soft spot in my heart for people who suffer from mental uh, disabilities. And I think that that's one segment of the population that we really should provide in terms of making sure that they have a place to live, making sure that they have the right treatment. I mean, I think for a long time, uh, mental illnesses were looked at as not illnesses because it's the brain, it's not the body. And I think, you know, it's last 50 years, we've hopefully moved away from that idea and understanding that mental illness is physical illness and it needs to be treated, you know, like, like other medical problems and, and pa patients who don't have the ability to take care of themselves. I think as a society, we, we do better, we're safer and we're more financially secure if we do take care of those folks. So switching over again to try and keep uh, the best hospitals and the best care in the United States, particularly in New York, has the increased cost of housing and inflation made it tougher to find residents and interns in the city? 
You know, I've been involved in interviewing medical students for residency for probably 20 years now, and also for interviewing residents to become fellows in vascular surgery also for about 20 years. And again, I may be biased, but I have not seen anything but an increase in the quality and the number of applicants who've come through. Now, people love New York and people love the idea of training at institutions. Um, they're it's challenging them sometimes for them in terms of housing and day-to-day -day expenses, but the hospitals have also come along with increased in salaries for residents and fellows. And so living in the city, although challenging, uh, is something that they're able to do. So we've actually seen our numbers increase dramatically and also the quality uh, increase uh, dramatically over the years. I think New York is doing well. And that has to do with the fact that people love the city and also the institutions here are some of the best. Are there many foreign students applying? We do have students from other countries that'll apply for residency spots. Uh, we'll often interview. We interview based on the quality of the applicant, their their grades, um, their you know things that they do in their spare time, their interests, their personalities, and so we do see uh, folks coming from uh, foreign medical schools that apply for positions, and we interview them based on their qualifications. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Interesting. So everybody's got this buzzword now, right? Everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's like, for me, I'm like, I'm becoming like a, I'm so interested in this subject. My goodness, they're going to, it's going to replace everybody. How do you think this is going to affect medicine? I've recently read, I think it was like the other day, there was, there was a report that artificial intelligence can detect breast cancer better than a radiologist. That was baffling to me. Let's talk about that. What do you think about that? I think that AI and VR, these technologies, have sort of sort of exploded on us in a short period of time. And I think it's going to take some time for people in every area to digest what the implications are for their, for their world. There's no question that there may be some true benefit from artificial intelligence in terms of analyzing findings on in radiology, also you know, compiling data such as symptoms and physical exam findings, as well as blood tests and imaging results and sort of compiling that into like a list of diagnoses. I think that we have to look at it as something that's potentially helpful uh, with the understanding that we don't want to eliminate the in-person interaction between physicians and patients. But if there's something that we can garner from this technology, which will make diagnosis and treatment easier and more effective, I think we should embrace it. But we shouldn't embrace it in the way of eliminating positions, jobs, people from doing what. So they you're do you're not concerned that they're going to that AI is going to replace doctors? Well, you know, I think if you ask people today, even the younger folks, if they want to get rid of the physical presence of a physician in their life, I think you'd probably get a resounding no. I think as generations go forward and AI becomes more of a part of our culture, you may see people opting to not go to the physician. I think in this day and age, that would be a mistake. Um, I do not see AI as replacing physicians. There's also something about physician-patient relationship. On Zoom? <laughs> well, so here's the thing about that. So when I do telehealth, I, I don't ever have an exclusive telehealth relationship with a patient, except for rare circumstances. So there's always 
in person. My, my philosophy is if you can take one third of your visits with a patient and make them virtual, you'll still get to see them two out of the three times and you will have that relationship. But to your point, like during the pandemic, I had a lot of patients who had been with me for years. And when I was able to do telehealth with them on the video, like there were patients that were in tears, just like, how are you doing? How are you coping? How's your family during this thing? So even though it's not right with somebody, it is a personal interaction and it's better than a, it's better than talking to a machine. But, but Nick, you're looking at it differently because you're a surgeon. So obviously you can't, patients have to see you because they're not going to operate on telehealth or on Zoom. What about the average physician? You know, you can do a lot of your pre-op work as a surgeon via telehealth because imaging can be uploaded onto the computer and you can look at someone's CAT scan and then evaluate them. But you're right. At this point in time, we do have robots in surgery, but they have to be run by the surgeon who's in the room. Uh, and so surgery may be more protected you know, over the years as opposed to other areas, but not necessarily forever. So I think that what we should focus on is that people are not, at least I don't think the majority of people are not going to want to get rid of that personal relationship that they have with their physician and have that be a relationship with the computer. And I think until that happens, we will be safe in terms of clinicians still having a, a role to take care of their people. And I think if we embrace it and don't fight against it and use it for the advantages that it has, can make us better physicians and make our patients more willing or more likely to want to come and see us because we have better tools and maybe our offices will work more efficiently. You know, the biggest thing that I hear from patients now who call for an appointment is, I can't get to see you for two or three months. I can't get to see you. I can't get to see you. Maybe some of this technology will help us to do better at getting them in faster and prioritizing who needs to be seen faster. I love your optimism and your forward thinking. So being that you have been a physician for what, like 20 years now at Columbia? Almost 20 years at I think everybody cares about their health and everybody's got the same question. Like, where have we come? Have we moved forward? Have we made any progress in anything? So I think you'd, I'd love, love for you to share with us some of the newest things that you found that we've moved ahead in and that is exciting in the medical world. So I'm going to start with my world, which is vascular surgery and why I got interested in it, which was back in the late 90s when I was a resident. We have There's a thing called an aortic aneurysm, which is probably the most the biggest thing that we treat is vascular surgeons, and that's a, it's an enlargement of your aorta, which can rupture and cause death. Back in the day when I was a resident, in order to fix an aneurysm in someone's abdomen, you had to open them up from, from the bottom of their chest to the below their belly button, go in there, clamp their aorta, replace it with a plastic tube, close them up, and they'd be in the ICU for three or four days, and they'd be in a hospital for 10 days and have a big incision. When I was in training, we started doing technology where we actually repaired the, the artery from the inside. And now when I fix somebody's aortic aneurysm, I basically go through two catheters in their arteries in their groin, don't make an incision. And when we're done, we take the catheters out, we put a Band-Aid on the groin and they go home the next day. So in that, in my world, the stuff that the patients go through to get treated for their biggest problems has dramatically improved thanks to the ingenuity of, you know, clinicians and physicians and engineers here in the States. But in other areas, like my mom died at before the age of 50 from lung cancer, right? In the in the early 90s. Nowadays, with metastatic lung cancer, with immunotherapies, people can live, they may not be cured, but they'll live a lot longer than they did several years ago. So I haven't heard, I, I haven't heard any cures for lung cancer. Tell us. No, not cures, but people live, can live a lot longer, even with metastatic lung cancer, with some of the immunologic therapies that have been developed. You know, immunology has been a science for a long time, but we're starting to see 
the fruits of research in immunology. You think about some of the um, autoimmune diseases, things like um, you know psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis. You see a lot of commercials about this, but Crohn's disease, right? Folks who used to suffer so much from these GI and dermatologic illnesses, there's now medications available that have antibodies directed at the disease-causing cells in different diseases, and people are living better, more comfortable lives, and oftentimes longer lives. You see uh, things about immunotherapy for advanced breast cancer, where people are living longer lives. So we're not necessarily curing things, but we're we're getting better. Like think about HIV and AIDS. You know, when I was in college, the idea of getting HIV was automatically a death sentence. Right now, most people live with HIV as a chronic disease if they have access to the proper antiviral medications. And these medications were developed by scientists who work in a lab who have an interest in studying viruses. So I think we've come a really long way. And I think that it's American ingenuity that really drives a lot of this. Well, that, that's really good news. I hope they were able to cure some of the cancers and Alzheimer's and the things that people are considering a death sentence. And um, I, I love that you think that immunotherapy is, is the way. Maybe Is there artificial intelligence involved in that? I don't know too much about how that works, but I listen, I know that the people that do a lot of this basic science work, there is a, there is a real push now for computational medicine, which involves just that idea, the combination of artificial intelligence, computer-based technologies with biology too. And again, this is the kind of stuff that takes place at the level of high-end PhD scientists. And I don't know much about it, but if you think about a combination of those types of intellectual pursuits and how that can impact on the future. I think I don't want to be blindly optimistic, but I think I'm always optimistic when I know the, the level of intellect. And, and one of the nice things about Columbia is that we have some of the greatest graduate school, uh, schools in the world too, neuroscience, you know, biology, molecular biology. I get to interact with these people on a regular basis and we get to understand what's coming down the pipe and where their interests are. And, and they can talk to us about what are the what are the patients need and where can we develop therapeutics in a better way. So, you know, Stay tuned, but be excited. That's that's great news. So what is your feeling about the future of healthcare in the United States? And do you think we'll remain the leader? We have work to do. There's no question. I think we, I think there's a lot of waste in the system. Um, I, I think that physicians and clinicians really have a responsibility to stay on top of technology and information in order to make sure that they utilize technology in a a cost-effective way. I think if we get better at understanding when to order tests, when to order meds, when to order surgery, as opposed to just kind of doing it in a knee-jerk fashion, we can actually save uh, significant expenditures and still keep the quality of healthcare that we have without having to. I mean, people talk about it all the time and politicians talk about it all the time about the healthcare budget growing and how expensive it is to provide care. But I do think that we could do better just by looking at some bottom line stuff and cutting out some of the waste. And I think if you if you if people that work in the world of insurance are willing to work with people who work in the world of clinical medicine and come up with algorithms or you know um, outlines that can guide the proper workup of patients with different symptoms and diseases, we could save money. You know, like someone comes into my practice having had a CAT scan in another institution. Sometimes if I don't have access to that CAT scan right away, I have to order another one. More money. More money and more exposure of radiation for that patient. Um, to have a real-time, 
ability to have all imaging and one for one patient uploaded onto their electronic records so that wherever they end up, we have access to it. That would be a way right away that would save a tremendous amount of money. But I'm specifically asking about the United States, particularly New York, because I think that's what makes it hum. Where do you think we're still going to be the leader? I mean, there's China, there's India, there's great physicians being born every day in different countries. What's your feeling about the United States still being the leader? Yeah, again, I don't want to come off as being just blindly optimistic and thinking that we're just, you know, nothing can stop us. But I do believe that there's certain things about the American system that encourage uh, the development of new technologies and the interaction. I mean, people, you always hear stories about people coming here with their ideas and having the ability to incubate their ideas. I think it's a combination of things that we have. We have venture capital firms that are willing to look and they have smart people on their boards who specialize in biotech and medicine and they can look and find things where they think the investment is worthwhile. I think that's a key component of what makes us will make us continue to be, you know, on the leading edge of development. I think also that when I look at my students and my my kids who are about to be college students, or one of them's a college student too, about to be, I see in them, in my medical students, my residents, I see this kind of optimism and I also see this intellect that I think wasn't lacking necessarily in my generation, but I think we've made it easier for them to really cultivate their interests and their passions. And I think that we're going to be producing people who have better focus on prizes that they want to accomplish. So I'm optimistic about it. A lot of it's because the people that I train and I see the greatness in them. So there'll be challenges, but of course, we're going to, you know, we have to be optimistic. So we're going to be number one. Well, Nick, I really, I love your optimism. I think that you're a forward thinker. I thank you for all that you do and keeping this us healthy. And I hope that we're going to always continue to be the leader in medicine. Well, one of the things that keeps us as a leader is people like you. I don't, I'm going to mention this because I know you're humble about it, but during the pandemic, because we've been friends for a long time, you wanted to do something. And I think a lot of people were sidelined during the pandemic and you went out of your way to raise money, tens of thousands of dollars, which fed my residents, the residents at New York Presbyterian in Columbia and other folks who were working the quote unquote, the front lines during that several months of real, you know, difficult times, you know, so people like you and people that are invested in making sure that not just, you know, banging the pots at seven o'clock at night during the pandemic, but let that energy keep going, going forward, that making sure that our system is is good and fair and that it provides for people at the, you know, at all ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And we can do that. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. And as I started the show by saying, there's nothing more important than health. And I do my best to give back when I can. Thank you for coming on my show and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye.